the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. Each month on the Subtext, I share a conversation with a playwright. This month, I share a conversation I recorded in September with Eric Simonson. This is the final episode of 2023, which brings us to the close of year six with American Theatre Magazine, and I could not be more proud of how long this has been going on. From 2015 to 2017, I recorded 25 episodes of the subtext in Los Angeles with LA Stage Alliance, and from 2018 to the present, this pod has been in the American Theatre Magazine family. I mentioned a few months ago that I, I plan to upload all of the old archives by the end of this year, and here we are, days away from the end of the year, and I am happy to say I have a plan in place to make that happen. Now I just need to do it. In total, we have released 98 episodes of the subtext, and that's just bonkers to me. Thank you to everybody who has been with us since the beginning. Thank you to everybody who joined us sometime along the way. And thank you to anybody who has even popped in for a single episode. I appreciate all of you. If you're in the giving mood this holiday season, feel free to drop a rating and a review for the subtext on Apple Podcasts. Eric Simonson is an ensemble member of the Steppenwolf Theatre Company, a position he maintains while working as a writer and director for film, television, theatre, and opera. Broadway writing credits include the hit play Lombardi, Magic Bird, and Bronx Bombers, which he also directed. He wrote for and produced Swagger for Apple TV, The Man in the High Castle and Homecoming, which featured Julia Roberts, both of those were on Amazon, Eric also wrote the TV movie Killing Reagan, which premiered on National Geographic and was nominated for two Critics' Choice Awards. He wrote and directed the documentaries Studs Terkel, Listening to America, for which he received an Emmy nomination, and A Note of Triumph, The Golden Age of Norman Corwin, which won him an Oscar for documentary short. Eric has accomplished so much in his distinguished career, we didn't even get into half of it during this conversation. The Oscar thing never even came up. This was recorded in September 2023 in the picturesque location of Bjorklinden, just south of Bailey's Harbor in Door County, Wisconsin. I've recorded these in a lot of... Uh, cool, beautiful places, but I've never recorded one of these in a place like where we are right now, which is Door County, Wisconsin. Right. Like one of the most beautiful, idyllic locations I've ever been in in my life. Yeah, I think so. How did you, uh, like, what is your relationship to to this area? Okay, so Door County, if if you don't know it, it's, a, the way I describe it is it's, if you look at the, the state of Wisconsin, that thing, that thumb that sticks out in Lake Michigan, that's Door County. It's pretty much an island. The bottom of it is Sturgeon Bay, which is just north of Green Bay. And um, it goes all the way up to the tip, and then there's Washington Island on the top of it. Now, the real uh, joy and beauty of Door County is that it's about 30 miles wide, and on one side you have a base, bay side, and the other side you have Lake Michigan, and they're two completely different bodies of water. So... Um, the Bayside is calmer, it's warmer usually. 
Lake Michigan is is kind of like uh, more dramatic and and terrifying sometimes, but still beautiful. And my it's a resort place, right? And the 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 good people of Door County had the wisdom enough a long time ago to protect their. They're beautiful county. They they don't allow franchises up here. If you have an establishment, you're not allowed to have a plastic sign or a neon sign. So the 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 quaint sort of beauty of it has has been retained by the citizens here, and they care about it. It's it's a place where people from Milwaukee, Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis they they come here and they have for years. And there's lots of activities and there's lots of beautiful scenery and boating and fishing. And it's just a very magical place. And um, people from around here, if you mention it, they know about it. They know how magical it is. People who haven't been a, been here, they want to be here. They want to get here. My family vacationed here from the time before I could remember. Mm-hmm. We would come up and we would go up, rent a cabin in Ephraim, which is this really nice little town on the Bayside. That was my experience there. Then I went to Lawrence University, which is a small liberal arts college in Appleton, Wisconsin. And they owned this estate that we're on right now called Bjorklinden. And they inherited it from a family called the Boyntons who wanted to bequeath it to an educational institute. Oddly enough, they first went to Northwestern and Northwestern turned them down. This is like, we're talking like 300, 300 acres of pristine wooded land that's got lakefront property, yeah. I don't know how many miles long. Yeah. Um, they were they, they didn't think that they could make use of it or afford the taxes. Anyway, Lawrence, it came to Lawrence. I worked up here during the summers. I cut cords of wood to pay for my salary. In the meantime, they were starting an educational center, which we're sitting in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was meant for um, alumni students, but anybody really can come here and they can take a class in the Dead Sea Scrolls or bird watching or watercolor and professors from all over come here and they teach these courses. So after I graduated um, and kind of made a name for myself in theater, they asked me to come back here and teach the seminars. So I now own a a cabin um, on the Bayside in Door County. I have never stopped coming up here. Boy, Mm -hmm. this is a long-winded answer, but you asked. So (laughs) uh, that's why we're here. um, I, I, I started writing plays up here and um, creating projects, and I would come in, you know, up here all time of year. You know, during the winter, it's pretty dead, but that was my favorite time to come up and find a cafe, one of the few cafes that was still open um, during the off-season, and, and, and just sit down and write a play. And I found it very inspirational to come up here, and if I wasn't writing, I'd just sort of, you know, clean my head and clear my head and um, work on, you know my next project in my mind and um i don't know how it dawned on me one day that i put two and two together it's just there was this facility here that had rooms and it had a kitchen and beautiful scenery and lakefront property and i thought more people should be able to experience this what if i started a festival i bet you i could do it for really cheap I have a good relationship with Lawrence University. And what if that festival was not just theater, but what if it was all the arts? Because that's what really gets my juices flowing. Yeah, that's what yeah, I love. Yeah, I love to see all sorts of different kinds of arts. And I want it to be entertaining. And I want people to have fun. I want, I want um, artists to have fun. I want um, the audiences who come and see their work, I want them to have fun. I don't want it to be so serious that 
everyone gets bored and self-indulgent, mm-hmm. you know, which I, I've seen happen in some festivals. I've, I've been to some international theater festivals that I've really enjoyed, like um, Perth comes to mind. It just had a very celebratory feel to it. The Edinburgh Festival in uh, Scotland can be like that, but it's very crowded and um, almost, you know, it's it's a it's a little overwhelming there. This yeah. is a very small. This is different. This is very small. This is small. <laughs> this is intimate, and I feel having now been here two years in a row, I feel like the the stuff we're experiencing at night, like seeing all these different these different projects that are so so different from each other is, uh, and just so each one amaz- amazingly crafted. Uh, but between the day, between the experiencing the days here and, uh, and then seeing the shows at night, I feel like over the course of the week, my life is intertwined with the space. Yeah. Like where we are, I'm constantly finding myself walking outside yeah. And uh, and still creating like you yeah. talked before about you come up here and you're just clearing your head and you're thinking of projects. And I get it like it can just happen here. You hear like the gentle lapping of the water as you're walking along a trail and it's like there's no cars honking like it's just it's just pristine and so like perfect for like clear minded creativity. And uh, and anyway, so I've just like felt that each week like because i'm spending the day outside but then the this place where we're inside now is essentially feels part of the outside and you're coming in and you're out and the inside and the outside become sort of sort of one yeah that's what i love about it i love bringing different artists up here one of my favorite things to do is because it's you know it's a lot of work to put this together so i have a, a couple of people i'm working with alan kapishki and dan clarer who are um producers um, different kinds of producers, but they, they work with me and we're planning months in advance. And then when we get to here and we welcome the artists and we all get together last year, we had some sort of, um, sort of a a workshop that we, we did to like bring the artists together, um, in a very quick way this year. We didn't do that, but it didn't really matter, you know, because you guys all find each other at the, the dinner table and the the lunch table and the breakfast table, you all have your meals together. And, my favorite time is the after that first day or maybe even like the second day when everybody's off in their own spaces creating Mm -hmm. and i walk down the hall and i can hear a bit of music coming out of this uh, hall or this this rehearsal space or i can hear some tap dancing coming Mm -hmm. out of this or i can hear some actors reciting some lines it just it it's a very furtive feeling and it just feels like things are happening things are being created um from nothing right and uh, to add to that the the fact that you've you curate a festival with with multi disciplines and then each discipline is viewing each other's work and what I love about it as an artist presenting my work and you've experienced over the years you present a new play and play people are there right theater people are there and they're talking to you and it's it's like kind of a shared language and experience and theater people talk in theater ways and you get theater feedback. But here you're presenting, for example, I'm presenting a play and I'm hearing from folks who are musicians, what they think about my play, uh, clowns, circus jugglers, what they think about my play. Like, uh, like people who work in video design, 
right? Like dancers mm -hmm. and you're getting points of view in response to your work that uh, I, I would never get at any theater festival because the theater festival is full of theater people. Right. And I've, I've loved that. The points of view in response to the work are just so different. And it's, it's like a huge gift to the creative process. Yeah. What you're bringing up is, you know, that's the reason why the, the festival is interdisciplinary. Um, but you're also bringing up something that I just thought of, which is that, you know, when we go to the theater festival where you have like, oh, we're presenting four new plays and, then the audiences are theater people. There are other playwrights, or the, and there, there, there are audiences who are used to doing theater and they support theater. It gets a little incestuous. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and and you're right. The 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 feedback that we're getting here, that you're getting here, you're getting it from people who have different interests in different kinds of arts who are audience members. But you're also getting it from different artists from different dis disciplines. So, it, you know, on its basis level, it's in, it's incestuous, and we know that. Um, you know, colleagues, collies and, and basset hounds, purebreds, they have problems, right? They like, <laughs> yeah, why is my Pekingese dog has an eye problem? And that's common, you know, and, but we know the mutts are probably the strongest and smartest of the dog breeds. Yeah. So why not? Right. Make, why not make all the artists mutts? Yeah, that's true. Um, so you grew up in Wisconsin, yeah. So, th so that's Door County is like accessible, right, to folks who are growing up in yeah in the area. Yeah, it's about uh, two and a half hours from Milwaukee. Yeah, and, and is that where you Madison, were growing up? It's like two and a half hours from Madison, too, right? Yeah, I came from from uh, the North Woods this oh, time. Okay, around. this so time it was like around, a little okay. over three hours. Yeah, I grew up um, first in the Milwaukee area, and then my parents moved to a farm when I was twelve years old. Um, about I don't know, now we're outside of Milwaukee. Yeah. Uh, something I've loved getting to know about you is that you and your siblings are all, uh, at least this, I'm not sure if you have more than those two siblings I've met, but you're all very creative and you're creative in totally disparate ways. I guess so. Yeah. Although it all started with theater. Um, and I, don't, I really don't know why. Well, I, I know how it happened, but yeah. I don't know why we... I, I don't think we're all, all hardwired to be in the arts. Um, well, I do have another sibling. She's a, a Britta, who's the youngest of us all. Mm -hmm. And she's a real estate agent in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And she started out as an actress, and I thought she was the most talented of us all, but she, you know, she was not passionate about it mm -hmm. and uh, so she took a different path but my brother Robert is a, a cocktails writer and mixologist who has had a very successful career writing books about cocktails and um, he comes to the festival actually as our mixologist and does the spirit of the cocktail uh, it's another part of the the entertainment or festive or celebratory part of the festival I just wanted everyone to just sort of relax mm -hmm. Um so that's what he does. And my sister Karen is a costume designer who has worked nationally, and I work with her still as mm -hmm. a director. I have, she's my go-to designer. Um, and my um, mom roped us into the theater because she was a piano performance major at, from Northwestern, but she had a family instead. Mm -hmm. She got a little extra cash by being a musical director to musicals that were being done at local high schools and community theaters. So instead of like hiring a babysitter, she would bring all of us kids to the rehearsal and tell us to hang out and just, you know, be quiet. 
Um, and that's where my love of theater started. Mm-hmm. And I think my siblings, too. And then when we moved out to this farm in Wisconsin, they didn't have a musical theater department. They didn't have anything mm-hmm. at the high school. So our family took it upon ourselves to start one. And we did Little Abner and Guys and Dolls and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying on a shoestring and without anybody knowing what theater was. And it was still magical. And were you performing? Yeah, I was a performer. Yeah, I was only a performer. Yeah. And I I did not have a very good singing voice. Um, and when I graduated from high school I, and went into college, I thought, well, that was really fun. But, I'm, you know, I can't possibly imagine a career in theater. I, you know, it's so odd to me that um, for ages, people just know, everybody knows theater is hard. And, and for most of the population, it's like not even a profession. Right. It's, and I knew that, you know, growing up in the country in in Wisconsin is just like no way. I'm, who makes a living in doing this? So yeah, I went to um, school just with an open mind and what I wanted to do. So what did you? What was the first thing you started doing when you went to college? Well, I took you know general liberal arts, which was eye opening to me. Um, I, I had a really poor education uh, growing up in a very poor rural community. And uh, I just became very curious about everything. Mm -hmm. And I started becoming interested in learning. And I just wanted to devour every subject, history, English. Um, I continued with theater, but not till like my sophomore year. Mm -hmm. And then I took a directing class. And I didn't know how to direct. I didn't even know anything about literature. When I took a general theater course, my professor, one of our, our first assignments was go check out 10 plays and read them and do a report on 10 plays. Mm-hmm. And I went to the library and I looked at these plays. I didn't know anything. I didn't know any playwrights. Mm-hmm. So I would pick out books that just had interesting titles or maybe were really thin because I didn't want to read <laughs> yeah. a whole play. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> I remember reading... Uh, checking out the Cyclops, which was an, a, like a lost Greek play. My professor even said, I don't think I've ever, I thought I knew all the Greek plays. I didn't know what I was looking for. One, one, I, one playwright I found I'd never heard of before was this guy named Harold Pinter. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the dialogue and I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is like, I could do this because he's giving me the instructions Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is where they pause. This is where they say the line. This is, and it was very spare. And I thought, when I was reading it, I didn't know what the hell was going on, but it felt like a piece of music to me. And I knew music. Mm-hmm. So um, I did this scene from The Caretaker. And I was so ignorant and audacious at the same time that I started rearranging the pauses. <laughs> in the script <laughs> yeah because i thought no nah, that's not right it doesn't it doesn't sound right to <laughs> what me. does pinter do? yeah well you know, i don't think he knew what he was doing um and it it went well it, i i was encouraged and then i did a scene from um sticks and bones by harold rabe and that was my like final assignment and for some reason i just had an affinity i just felt like I knew what the playwright was looking for. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't explain it because I didn't know anything. 
about acting or theater or the craft or I, that stuff I learned along the way. I mean, mm -hmm. it took me, I'm still learning, you know, but it took me a while. I didn't know anything, but I knew there was a story there and I knew I, I, w I could tell that story. And that scene was before like a group of friends and faculty. In fact, it, it was a huge hit. And I thought it was the first time I felt that I had a talent for something. I like really had a talent for something. Wow. And that I, this is something that I could do and that I wanted to do. Yeah. And um, from that point on, I started to set my sights on directing. Wow. That's a great moment to have yeah because it doesn't happen for everybody but i feel like i feel like uh, everybody has a thing like that and some people just never bump into it did you do you remember what that was it was playwriting yeah i know but and what was the moment for yeah i so i spent my um my 20s having like corporate jobs i got out of undergrad was not a great student but i got a degree and then just started to work in jobs and uh, I felt a need for a hobby because at that point I had done nothing. I was an athlete, a bad athlete in you know middle school and high school. So that wasn't going to carry into adulthood. So uh, as I'm in my early 20s, I'm like, what am I going to do when I'm not at work? How am I going to meet people? So I started to do some improv and then I uh, started to do some theater acting. And while I was doing this stuff, I was, you know, working nine to fives at uh, various corporate gigs. And, uh, and I learned I liked being part of something, um, but I also learned I'm not, I didn't really have an aptitude for acting. Uh, I felt it while I was in the middle of performances. Like, I don't belong here on stage. This is not the space for me. So uh, I thought maybe writing. And because I was acting in plays, when I started to write, I was like, well, I will start writing plays. And it was like that that moment, like you had, uh, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I think I can do it. Like, I both like it and feel I have an aptitude right. for it. And... Uh, it was like a magical moment that redirected my, the trajectory of my life. Yeah. Um, so you started off directing then. You were in school. And you well, I wanted to be a director. I, actually, no, I, I took a little side trip to design, scenic design. I, was a, I thought I was a pretty good artist. Yeah. And I, we, we had two professors at Lawrence Theater Professors. One was... Um, a playwright and the other was a scene designer and I he, he gave me some encouragement so I started taking all these lighting design and uh, I was a technical director uh -huh. at my college yeah um, and um, I, I that was my emphasis when I got out I, I took one job designing a set at a community theater in which I was given 500 bucks and I was the only person who was there to build the set and I thought oh. this is for the birds yeah and I stopped doing that and uh I did improv in Madison uh, with, a, with a bunch. I just kind of hung out there. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But eventually I, I said, I, I should just try the theater thing. And I should go to Chicago because this is like 1983. Yeah. And Steppenwolf and Wisdom Bridge, Organic Theater, um, Remains Theater, all these theaters were just coming into their own. And everybody was talking about Chicago. I, I thought, I want to go there and see what's happening. I'm going to give this a shot and give it a certain amount of time. If it doesn't work out, fine. Mm -hmm. Try something else. So I went there not knowing anybody. 
And the catch-22 of directing, of course, is that no one will give you a job unless they've seen you work. Mm -hmm. So I reasoned, I'm not a bad actor. I had acted, you know, at in college. Yeah. Um, perhaps if I got in a few plays, I could get to know people, and one day they might offer me a directing job. And that's what I did. I took I took a headshot that looked like, you know, uh, forty year old virgin virgin, virgin <laughs> kind of headshot. It was like even it was like five times worse than that. Um, and then I had this really stupid resume because my my college didn't right. you know they didn't turn out actors or directors. They gave you a, 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 a what color is your parachute? Said, Here you're on your own. Try to find a job. And do you want to do a resume? Here's a really good resume for a banker. Right. Um, so I, 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 looking back on it, there were people who saw that resume and they said we had a good laugh. <laughs> um, but I did. I did that. I, I auditioned, and there were so many theaters and so much happening in Chicago. I I found my way into um, uh, some productions, and I hooked up with a theater called Lifeline, mm-hmm. which is still there. Still I'm still around, operating. Yeah. 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 And um, I I was the light board operator for their very first play, which was um, Michael Weller's Split, directed by Kyle Donnelly. And I kind of hung around them. I was their house manager. And one day they surprised me. And um, I auditioned for them but never got in at any place. One day they just like called me. Uh, they invited me to a party. And it was just them. And they said, we want you to be a part of our ensemble. And um, it's a whole Woody Allen thing. It's like, who? I don't want to be a member of a club that would want me as a member. <laughs> right. uh, um, but and What's I didn't know why people? it's like yeah. I to this day I don't know why they wanted me in their ensemble because I had done hardly anything except that they knew that I would show up you know they knew that I'd be there to build the sets and I took it I took the opportunity and they cast me in plays and that's where I got my first directing job or mm-hmm. job they didn't I didn't get paid right. but uh, I I directed a some Pinter. Mm-hmm. My first my first production in Chicago, you know, quote unquote professional, was of a Pinter, a one act. Um, uh, I can't recall the name of it now, but there were a bunch of blackout sketches in it too. Um, but that was that was the first, and then I, I just kept on meeting people. I met, met Scott. I worked with Scott McPherson. Do you know of Marvin's Room? He wrote the play oh, Marvin's Room. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he 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 was. Uh, I continued to direct, and I cast Scott in a play, and we worked on a play that he wrote, and um, Pinter Plays did well. Then I did a play called, uh, I did Waiting for Godot at Bailiwick, and I think I did um, Till the Fat Lady Sings, which is Scott McPherson's first play. Anyway, they all did well, right, with the critics. Mm -hmm. And then I got a job uh, as a director working at Next Theater for The Normal Heart. They asked me to direct The Normal Heart. Which was the very first Chicago production of that play? Yeah, I was going to say this must have been around the time the play came out. Originally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a big deal. There was a, a guy named a producer named David Dillon, young guy, who wooed Larry Kramer into giving him the rights to the Chicago production, and then he teamed up with Next Theater. I think he went around to all the major theater companies and said, "I have the rights to this. Will you co-produce it with me?" And they all turned him down except for Next. Mm. And I had a really good relationship with Next because I had acted there. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to direct it, and that was a, a big deal. I mean, it, the play was an enormous hit. Um, it's a really effective play, but I think we did it right, and we cast the right people, and it just, you know, continued to, like, 
sell tickets. So how were you during this time period? How were you sustaining yourself? How were you paying rent and bills and all that? Uh, well, a, a couple things. I my I happened to find apartments that were a hundred dollars a month. I could always find somewhere in Chicago. I could find an apartment. I lived above the Blues Bar, the B L U E S Bar on Halstead, mm-hmm. hundred eight dollars a month. I found a little coach house that if, and had a roommate, hundred five dollars a month. You know, I was I was really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had the odd jobs that everyone else has. I worked at the Board of Trade for a little while. I worked worked at cookie companies. I worked as a wait waiter, um, and just really, I mean, there were there were months when I could not pay the rent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just that old old yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Did you so when you're going through this period? Was it like you're at these jobs and what you're actually thinking about is the pinter play you're directing, right? The work you're doing when you get out of work. Is that what your focus is? Well, that's was? what you're doing it for. Yeah. And, you know, there are times when I was a waiter where I, I didn't have any money, right? I was broke. And um, you have different shifts. One shift ends really soon, like right after the rush hour. The other shift has to go on until the, um, the dinner hour. Mm-hmm. So if somebody was absent and um, there was an opportunity for me to take a longer shift, I'd be the first one to say, no, I don't want to take that. Or if somebody wanted a longer shift, I was the one who would offer up my longer shift so I could just get out of work. I hated doing it mm-hmm. that much, even though I needed the money. So, yeah, I looked forward to those those um, opportunities that I had. And I was, you know, mostly working for free, but I was learning so much. I was, you know, I, I worked with Keith Huff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I met in Chicago. I worked with Rick Cleveland, mm-hmm. another really great, Sally Nemeth. I was meeting all these really great artists, and we were just at the start of our careers, but we were having a blast. Mm-hmm. We would do late-night shows at the Bailiwick. We would, anywhere you, anything you wanted to do, anywhere you wanted to go, you could do it because there were so many places to do it, so many opportunities, and I took advantage of them. And this is the thing about that period in my life is that, yeah, I was like working day jobs. I was also like directing plays. I was acting in plays. I was I wasn't writing at that time, but I always equate it to like the old plate spinners on the Ed Sullivan show, right? Mm-hmm. These guys who would come in and they'd have these thin poles and they'd spin a plate on top of it, and then they'd let go of it and it would keep going, and then they'd do the next plate and they'd spin that right. until they had like ten plates going. And they had to keep on going back to the other plate to spin it to keep it going, and. As I was doing this in Chicago with all these other jobs, I was able to cobble together a living. Yeah. And the thing about that is I still do that to this day. This is the way I learned to do my craft. Mm-hmm. Um, do as many things as I possibly could and just keep coming back to them. Mm-hmm. And you're still doing that now. Still doing it. And I don't know if it's because, because other people do that too. It's, I don't think I'm just, you know... Uh, I'm 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 not lonely in that way of looking and doing doing things. I I think it, but I do ha- I do have to believe that it is like how I came up through the ranks and it's what I know. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I'm I'm. Was there a moment though, when, because what you were describing, like all that plate spinning, it's when you're when you're young you you can do that but it's not sustainable for a long period of time right like the plates need to slow a little bit or maybe you need to have some fewer plates right mm-hmm. uh did, when did it start to shift 
for you? When did when oh. did it start? When did life and maybe it never has become easier? But like, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I do. I do know what you're saying. When I'll tell you the first time that it really I was able to quit my day job mm-hmm. was when I was I was still acting. You know, I was, as I was directing, I was still acting. And there was a moment where I thought when I was about when I was 29, I said, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I've directed one of the biggest hits in Chicago, The Normal Heart, and I'm still doing a day job. Yeah. It it was so disheartening, and I thought, I just need to find a regular job. So I quit Lifeline. I said, I can't do this anymore, and they, I said bye to them. And the next day, I got a call from Steppenwolf Theater, and they asked me if I wanted to, do, to audition for The Grapes of Wrath. And I thought, well... As long as I'm a winged seed, I might as well try this seed, (laughs) see where it lands. So I auditioned and um, they cast me. Can you contextualize, like, there's an aura to Steppenwolf today Mm -hmm. that we can look back on, but can you contextualize where they were in in that company's evolution at this time when you... Yeah, that introduced them. it was a it was a very interesting time for them because they were um, at this at that time they were in the space on Halstead North Halstead Street I think it's twenty eight fifty one Halstead which was a former bowling alley, mm-hmm. and they had had the hits of Bomb and Gilead, uh, True West. Um, they were in their home on their home base. They had been developing new plays, and every play just seemed to be a hit. And Laurie Metcalf was still there, and Gary Sinise, and Terry Kinney. John Malkovich had moved on, but Joan Allen was still there. All their core base was still there, and they were acting in the company. But Hollywood was calling, New York was calling, people Mm -hmm. were starting to leave, and Steppenwolf knew they had to grow. So they invited uh, Frank Galati into the ensemble, who was more... A director than a right uh, than an actor, although he did do some. I don't think he ever acted at Step. Oh, he did do some acting at Steppenwolf, but he's mainly a director, and he was a professor at Northwestern. He added a kind of a sort of a keen eye and keen intelligence to what was a visceral, primal acting style. It was mm-hmm. a really great call on their part. But at the same time, they thought we have to grow physically too. So they they uh, started building a campaign to building new. Theater, which is the theater that now exists in 1600 North Halstead. So it was a very transitional period. Mm-hmm. Grapes of Wrath was going to be the biggest production they had ever done. Mm-hmm. It was going to cost millions of dollars. It was going to be a huge risk. It was going to have 36 people in it. Um, and it was going to start out the Royal George Theater, and they had hopes of taking it to Broadway. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a very transitional part. If Grapes of Wrath didn't work out, I don't know what, have, what would have happened to the company. Mm-hmm. It was such a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so. right, and before this, they had, they had taken true, their production of True West to New York yeah. previous to this. So they, they had that sort of building in their DNA, the, the, the Chicago to New York pipeline. Right? That's right. Yeah. Also Bomb and Gilead. Right. And uh, Malkovich had started directing there. I think he did a Shaw play. Um, and uh, I think there were a couple other transfers, but yeah, True West was a big one, and Balm and Gilead, those two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get cast in Grapes yeah, of I Wrath. Yeah, I get cast in Grapes of Wrath, and that, that was a, a project that went on for, you know, lasted a couple of years, because we opened it in New York, and I didn't have a big part. 
Yeah. Mind you, I played like six, six yeah. parts, second Oki from the right, guy who owned the ranch, got used car salesman, and I had about six lines. Uh, but it was so much fun. Yeah. I mean, and I got a chance to watch the master, Frank Galati, direct. He was also writing. So there was, it was like going to uh, getting my MFA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also got to watch the actors and learn how they acted and what the Steppenwolf style is, although nobody can really describe that. I got an inside um, view of what what it was, you know, what their process was like. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first uh, run of it in Chicago is four hours long. We, you know, we worked on it really hard, even like past opening to make it ready. Um, Frank Rich gave us a good review, though, mm-hmm. and it ended up in La Jolla, and then we went to London with it, and then Broadway. And I, so this is where I I got out of debt, mm-hmm. right? And I got to quit my day job. And um, I didn't quit theater. I mean, it was a thing that prevented me from quitting theater. Um, on Broadway, I acted in it. At the same time, I was getting known as a director, like before that. And I gave a copy of Secret Rapture to Rondi Reed, who was in the ensemble. I said, Steppenwolf should do this play, and I should direct it. And Rondi had become a huge fan of mine. Mm-hmm. So she passed the script on to Randy Arney, who was the artistic director. Meantime, in New York... I'm acting in The Grapes of Wrath and suffering from the most horrible case of stage fright. I wow. didn't know why, I don't know why, but suddenly I was just terrified that I was going to screw up on stage. So I, my days were free and I was having a great time in New York and playing on the Broadway show league and all this stuff. And I'd get to the theater at night, I'd just be terrified. So uh, one day, Randy Arney calls me in the middle of the run. He says, do you want to direct, come back to Chicago and direct Secret Rapture? I said, yes, absolutely. Get me out of <laughs> So that's, uh, that was that. I went back to Chicago and uh, directed Secret Rapture. And then, you know, not long after that, they um, asked me to be on the artistic staff, and they uh, put me in the ensemble. They asked me to be in the ensemble. How did you feel? Like, did, is this, like... Was Steppenwolf a uh, this theater that you ever you aspired before this invitation to audition for Grapes of Wrath? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it was the reason. If you had like list the reasons, it was the top reason I came to Chicago. Yeah, they were so exciting. They were doing something new. They were making theater sexy and and interesting and dangerous. Um, and I, I went to see their plays and I said, oh, okay, I get it now. I don't know how they're doing what they're doing, but, but I, 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 I can understand why people are drawn to them. Now, you know, most everybody who was coming to Chicago at that time probably had the same ambition to be in a Steppenwolf play, to get close to that company and try to understand what they were doing. Yeah. But I, I kind of had this sense that it wasn't going to happen for me. And that I just told myself that because I didn't want to put pressure on myself to like, you know, try for something that I, I didn't know if I was right for it. And I, I, I had a, an instinct that if they, they felt I was pushing for, uh, I don't know, more inclusion into their company, that that was actually the wrong, wrong thing to be doing. Um, so I just, my approach was, I'm going to see if I can, get into Steppenwolf production, and I'm going to try to learn as much as I possibly can from it, but that's not going to be my goal. My goal is going to like be my own journey, whatever that 
that was going to be. And I think that uh, that actually really helped me get closer to the ensemble. Mm -hmm. So you came back, you came back from Broadway, came back to Chicago, directed this play. Yeah. Uh, did you feel like your, your career was like on a new trajectory? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, and did it, was it, did it fulfill that promise? Like what happened? Like, where did it lead you next? It was um, a, a big deal, me getting to direct a, a play at Steppenwolf. I had, th I had just turned 30, mm -hmm. and they didn't let many outside the company direct their plays. Um, so the play was well-reviewed. Um, I don't remember it as being the best experience, but it, you know, I got to work with some really great actors, and... Like I said, people really liked the play and the production. And um, Randy, Arnie, needed some help. He had just opened a brand new theater mm -hmm. that was enormous like compared to what they had. So he asked me to be uh, an associate artistic director. And um, they didn't pay me much, but it was kind of cool to mm -hmm. have a job that was full-time and I didn't have to like wait tables. Um, and they had a new place project that they were in the middle of there that was a complete mess. I mean, nobody was really uh, guiding it or taking care of it. And it was this weird, the, the ensemble wanted to be in, involved in the creation of the place. So they asked, they sent out a call for play, play, new play submissions in which you would send a treatment in the first 10 pages of the play, mm -hmm. which sounds like a great idea, but it's actually not, you know, if you have to ask the DGA. Um, because that leaves a playwright open to somebody stealing your idea. Um, if you submit it, say you want to make a play about cats versus dogs, whatever. Yeah. And yeah. then so, in two years later, Steppenwolf is doing the play cats versus dogs, but not including the player. Anyway, um, aside from that, we found this play that the ensemble really liked that was called The Trial of Z Jacob Zulu that... Uh, was by a, a ex-South African named uh, Tug Yurgrau. And he had taken a direct transcript of this young um, South African black man who had uh, been charged with blowing up a mall, shopping mall in Durban, South Africa. Mm -hmm. And all he had was the transcript of the trial, the actual transcript of the trial. And this idea that the a cappella South African singing group, Ladysmith Black Mabazo, should play a kind of Greek chorus in it. That's all he had. Mm -hmm. And Steppenwolf said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so they paid him a commission. Um, and we went after Lady Smith Black Mombazo. It turned out that the leader of Lady Smith Black Mombazo, Joseph Shabalala, was related to this terrorist. So he had an investment in telling this story. Uh, ultimately became a story of redemption. Right. Um, and uh, we didn't have a director. One day, like two days before the workshop, Randy said, you direct it. <laughs> so it was kind of like one of those moments that is just really kind of fortunate because I did the workshop and it turned out really well. And then he asked me to direct the production and, and that eventually went to Broadway. And you, your, your production went on to Broadway. Yeah. So this is great. At this point now, you've acted on Broadway. Yeah. Now... With this production that you're talking about, was this a musical or was this a play with music? Play with music. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
And so a play you've directed lands mm-hmm. on Broadway. Uh, at some point, and I'd love to hear when this starts to enter into your career, you begin writing. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and I want to tr- now. I want to track. I want to track that because okay, that's an interesting. That goes in an interesting direction as well. Right. So, uh, flashback to a few years before this, I was working with my friend Scott McPherson. He became a really good friend, and um, we were, we had aspirations. You know, we really loved movies. We really loved television. We loved theater too. But we felt we were both like starving artists and we got together and we said and scott said you know as long as we're banging our head against a wall let's bang our head against a really big wall and start writing film scripts and and i said let's do it all Mm -hmm. and um so we got together and we listed some ideas and one of the ideas scott had for a play was essentially the plot to marvin's room he told me that story i listened to it and i said that's the project we should be working on Mm -hmm. And the thing about working with Scott is that up until that point, the job of a playwright was very mysterious to me. I didn't. I thought you had to have a special talent to do that. I thought you had to be touched, you know, by God to. And he demystified it. I mean, Scott was just a regular guy, and he was also very funny. And he, we would talk about a scene. Maybe we'd read it out loud. We'd talk about the next scene. Scott would go home. A couple days later, he'd come back with a new scene. Then I'd watch him rewrite the scene in front of me. I thought, wow, that's him. He's just doing that. Mm-hmm. It's like, not that he's not talented, but I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. Um, uh, long story short, the, the, that Marvin's room that we were working on um, uh, got away from me. Um, and I won't go into the details, but it eventually got produced at the Goodman by another director. Mm -hmm. And that spurred me on to think, well, I don't like being a director when I'm dependent on the permission from these playwrights out there to let me direct their work. It seems like not very um, honorable, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? I feel like I felt like I need to be able to stand on my own two feet, and I have stories that I want to tell, and they're not necessarily written down by another playwright. Mm -hmm. So I got this idea. I was a big fan of the book uh, Bang the Drum Slowly, and I thought that would make a good play. Why don't I start with an adaptation, and I'll, I'll, I'll write an adaptation of this book if I can get the rights to it. And then um, once I write wrote the play, I'll just like get some theater company to put it up, um, which sounds really ridiculous, but that's exactly what happened. I found I found the writer, Mark Harris, who didn't have an agent because he hated agents. Mm-hmm. So I got to dr- talk directly to him, which was a little crazy, but he granted me the rights to like do one production of his book. And then while I was acting in Grapes of Wrath, I would spend my spare hours doing this adaptation of Bang the Drum Slowly. Mm-hmm. And once I finished it, I had gained enough trust with Next Theater of of Evanston that I sent it to them. I gave the script to them, and I said, I want to do this play. I think it's going to be a hit. And she took a chance, and she said, okay. So I, I that was my first playwriting experience. Mm-hmm. But... You know, for five years after that, at least five years after that, all I did was adaptations. And I was scared to death to write an original scene. I didn't think I could do it. I find that fascinating because 
I am scared to death of adaptation. Oh, that's interesting. Because I am worried about uh, the need to fictionalize things and and put words into the mouths of real people that may or may not have ever been spoken and taking that liberty. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right? Well, uh, from the from the point of view of a director, when you when you read a book and you think about an adaptation, you you you're taking a lot of shortcuts because someone's already decided the story for you. They've started decided who the main characters are. They've even given you some of the as a gift some of the dialogue that mm-hmm. these people might say. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I mean, I don't know if Bang the Drum slowly is a very good adaptation. I mean, as a standalone piece of playwriting Mm -hmm. because I wrote it for my thinking that I was going to direct it right and I've done a couple of adaptations like I did an adaptation of Mm -hmm. Slaughterhouse-Five which has since been published but I did it for Steppenwolf Theater and I did it with my directing in mind so it's just crazy I've people who have like tried to stage that play in other cities in other companies um, I might have gone and seen the production, but eventually they come to me and say, how did you do this? Because we're having a hell of a time staging it. And that's not nothing, something that you want to hear as a playwright. Right. You want to know that your, your, your play is easy to put up and that it's accessible to the playwrights and the director. I don't think I was writing adaptations that way. Right, because you were directing it in your, I was he- directing in your head it. as you were writing yeah, it. Yeah, but, but to me, the, 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 the idea of doing an adaptation was like... Uh, starting out with a script that just needed to be edited. Right. I wasn't really, you know, now when I do an adaptation, I feel like I have more license to theatricalize it. Yeah. You know, um, and not do exactly what's there. Like if you, I never thought for a minute I could invent a new piece of dialogue for a character that wasn't already in the book. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just, I was so, I don't know if I was reverential or if I was just scared. But that's what how it turned out. Uh, do you know if Vonnegut saw Slaughterhouse Five? I do because, yes, I saw him and I met him and I shook hands with him. Uh, he seems to be one to not mince words. Yeah. So, what did he say to you? He didn't say much at the opening, um, but he wrote me a really nice letter uh, later on, telling me how much he he liked the production. Wow. Yeah. Wow. How'd that feel? Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hero worship that guy, and it was not just the opening. It was I was in communication with him before that, and I I've kept the letters, and I look back, and it's like it's a, they're classic Vonnegut letters. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I recently just watched the documentary that uh, oh, now I can't remember the director's name. I, I know the documentary you're talking yeah. about. So I, he's, he's a friend of, he's like they a were friend friendly, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought the, that was the, good. The director from um, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, Vonnegut's like fresh in my mind, which is yeah. why I kind of took this little tangent. Uh, so you talked, you mentioned a few minutes ago about how you, you had this five-year period and you're like, I can't create a yeah. new scene. I can't mm-hmm. write something new. Like, what broke for you? What shifted? Um, I was doing an adaptation of Moby Dick at the Milwaukee Rep. And there was, I, I was missing a scene that was going to bridge 
you know, two scenes that had the same characters and they needed a costume change or something. And also Starbucks is underwritten in, I don't know if you know this about Moby Dick or remember it, but you don't get to know Starbuck um, much in, in backstory, but you get to, he's really a key part in the story. Mm-hmm. So I invented, and also, um, I don't know, we, we, I invented a scene between Starbuck and his wife, which was like totally not in the novel. It's like not a part of it at all. Mm-hmm. And I had to write it. I mean, I had to write the dialogue. I had to write the original dialogue. And I remember just being tortured mm-hmm. writing it. And it was only like one page long or something. But I was just terrified that I was going to bring it to rehearsal and the actors were going to make fun of me. And they didn't. And it wasn't a very good scene. But it was serviceable. It got us from one, yeah. you know, point A to point B. Yeah. The thing that turned it for me, though, was... It gave me, first of all, it gave me confidence. It's like, well, maybe I can write dialogue. But I pitched this idea for a, a, a new play to Robert Altman, who was then at Kansas City Rep, that was histor- based in Kansas City and historical. And it was basically an Orpheus myth kind of plastered on top of 1935 jazz scene about mm-hmm. a black jazz musician who falls in love with a white singer. And, you know, gangland is in there and everything like that. But it, it, I was making the story up from whole cloth. So it had to be original um, dialogue. And he he's another one of these angels in my life that pe- there are certain people come in and they just like, they see something in you and they take chances mm-hmm. in you. Mm-hmm. You just, you can't do it without them. So Peter's always taken chances with me. And he said, he commissioned me to write this play. And I started writing it. I think halfway between writing that, I realized something that I should have known all along, which was you can't be a playwright unless you're an actor. Mm. And if you look back on history, most of the best playwrights we have are actors who have acted. They have acted, maybe badly, mm-hmm. you know, but they have been on the stage and they know what it's like to approach a character, mm-hmm. you know, have an intention, have an obstacle. Stoppard was an actor. Pinter was an actor. Mamet was an actor. Um, I think, well, if they haven't, I mean, I really appreciate the playwrights who have never been actors. Like, um, I think, uh, I can't can't think of anything. None none come to mind. August Wilson, I don't think, has ever acted, has he? I don't know. And he's he's brilliant at writing characters and dialogue. I have his new autobiography ready to be read. Well, you'll just, tell me, right? Just, yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, for me in writing a play, suddenly it dawned on me, I have to like be in the room and not just writing things. I have to like let these characters take me where they're going. Yeah. And because I had done a little bit of improv in Madison and loved doing improv in Madison, just like you had done improv in yeah. Boston, I it really helped me like break out of that um, mindset that I just couldn't do it because mm. suddenly the characters were talking to one another and um, characters were coming alive and then I could go over them and I could refine refine everything but that that was the breakthrough for me mm-hmm. and I, I if I hadn't had that journey from director to adaptation to original play and if it hadn't come along that way I don't know if I'd ever have been able to sustain a, a, a career in writing. Hmm. I want you to continue talking about your, your journey with the writer part of you and how 
where that eventually led you. Mm-hmm. Well, the, 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 the truth of it is, boy, that, that's an open-ended question because there, there, there are different parts to it. I, went, I eventually ended up in L.A. I had, I had to choose between New York and L.A., and I always was interested in television and film, and I thought if I don't really do that now, I probably never will do that. So mm-hmm. I went out to L.A., and going out to L.A. was like starting over. I mean, I was really knocking on doors, and this is where my plate-spinning career came in handy because Mm -hmm. and i still do that today i mean i can't believe it i'm you know in my early 60s and i'm still thinking like a 25 year old and like well if i get the game together and i put a (laughs) you know pass the hat we can get enough cash to put this project up and my friends think i'm crazy but it's like what's the point of it if you're like sitting around waiting for a project to happen because this other person won't return your phone call it's just like ridiculous anyway i'm in la and i'm Fancy myself a director. I get a couple of short films going. I do a, a like a feature film with my friend Rick Cleveland. That did well in the festivals, but it did, you never, never picked up for distribution. And then I started thinking, well, I've got to like make some money, and I I've got to get some stuff off the ground, and I want to get something on television. How do I do that? Well, I guess you get an idea for a, a, a television series and you, know, you pitch it you mm-hmm. try to sell it well i wasn't a writer really um but i knew writers so i called up jeff hatcher i said i have this idea for this is back hbo was like starting to get real sexy with the sopranos and you know hitting it big with those kinds of television shows and they hadn't done anything historical and i thought they should do something that's really gritty and historical so i got this idea that they would should they should do a, a series based in New York on the Lower East Side about gangsters right after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scorsese did, did something like it like five years later, but at this right. time there was nothing like it. Yeah. I called up Jeff Hatcher. I pitched him the idea. It was called Five Points. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. I don't know if you know Jeff, but he kind of talks like a yeah. patrician. Um, and the best, the best kind of patrician. Um, and um, he said, you know who would be really good at this is Howard Corder. And you said, you know, Howard, I said a little bit. So we we got on the phone and Howard's a history buff and he loves that kind of stuff. So the three of us, at that time, you didn't really need to work up much of a pitch. You just had to have a sort of a general idea. So the three of us pitched it to one place, HBO, and they bought it. Mm. <laughs> and suddenly I was co-writing this uh uh, developing, mm-hmm. co-developing this project with these two playwrights I admired. Yeah. I said, what a great opportunity to, again, learn how it, the craft is done. And I didn't do much writing. They did, really didn't want me to do much writing. I mean, they, they loved my feedback and everything, but I just sort of sat back and went along for the ride. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I'm doing my little adaptations. You know, Huntington uh, Theater in Boston commissioned me to to write a play and uh, Madison rap at that time commissioned me to do an adaptation. Um, and I'm trying to get my directing career off the ground that development, you know, they passed on it, but it led to another, um, project that I pitched at HBO with Jeff Hatcher. And then I pitched another project with my friend, Tom McCarthy, who's a director and a writer. See, Mm -hmm. you see a pattern here. I'm just like, Hitching my wagon to these people who right. can pr- get the wagon across the finish line. Right. And in the meantime, I'm every every thing I'm developing, I'm expected to do more writing, until eventually 
I say, I'm going to pitch something myself, damn it. Mm -hmm. And that was Honest. I pitched this script called Honest, which was a story of an imposter told backwards one episode at a time. And I went into HBO, and um, I remember just this very intimate sort of conversation. And I, it's like one of the best pitches I ever had. I just like looked him in the eye and I said, you know, all of us lie, mm-hmm. right? It's in our DNA. We can't help it. Even white lie is still a lie. This is a story about a liar. And we're going to be attracted to this person. We're going to like this person. We're going to want this person to succeed because we're going to see ourselves in him. I mean, it was it was just like the perfect pitch. Yeah. And they bought it. It was the first time I had been asked to write something solo for television. So that was another big hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then Lombardi, which was uh, a play I wrote about Vince Lombardi. Yeah. That so, was... so talk about Lombardi. Yeah. How did, how did that project manifest? Well, back to Jeff Hatcher, I was talking to him one day. He's a friend. He said, you know, Madison Rep called me and they wanted me to do this adaptation of Vince, coach Vince Lombardi. And I said, well, if you want him in pumpkin patch and a tri-corner hat, I could possibly <laughs> do it. But I said, Jeff, I've been wanting to do a play about Vince Lombardi for the past five years. Tell them to call me. Yeah. And they, they, Madison Rep had gotten in touch with David Marinus, who had wrote the seminal biography on Vince Lombardi called When Pride Still Mattered. And um, they did. They called me. Jeff told them, and they called me. And, and um, they hired me to write this adaptation, which I called The Only Thing, which was this kind of like, surreal flight of fancy about Vince Lombardi fainting in the Austin Straubel Green Bay Airport and then hallucinating that he's playing the card game Sheepshead with St. Ignatius, his dad, and his old coach from Army football team. I mean, it was crazy. (laughs) And it it was meant to satisfy football fans and theater fans alike, and it ended up, you know, satisfying nobody. But, I, you know, David loved the play, and I loved the play. About the same time in New York, there were two producers, Pony, Tony Panturo and Cran Ferns, uh, Fern, Fernzer, who were um, wanted to do had read David's book and wanted to do an adaptation of that play, and they called up David, and David said there already is an adaptation of that of, of that book. Yeah, and um, and we sent it to them, and they they read it, and they were confused. And they said, would Eric want to meet in Chicago? So the four of us met in Chicago, and I knew exactly what they were going to say, Yeah, which was, can you write a different play? And that's exactly what they did say. Uh-huh. And I said, I can write five plays about Vince Lombardi if you want me to. But I knew what they were looking for, you know, because I wasn't writing for Broadway when I wrote for Madison Rep. Mm-hmm. So I wrote them a play that I thought would work for the audience that they were looking for. And one that I really liked, mm-hmm. and I was able to do that. So where did the where did the play start? Well, they were going. They wanted to try it out. They wanted to just like have it land on Broadway right away. But the director Tommy Kale insisted that they do a tryout. Mm-hmm. So they spent a lot of money getting a, a a freestanding theater in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires, mm-hmm. and we um, put the show up there in a proscenium configuration. Because um, it was going to be at Circle in the Square later, which is in the round. But we put it up, and we we had I think eleven performances, and it satisfied everyone enough so that we thought we could all move forward. Mm-hmm. And then you did, right? Yeah. And then the show goes on to Broadway. Show goes on to Broadway. Yeah, opens on Broadway. So that's the thing that I find incredible 
yeah. about about you in your in your creative career. So now you have written a play on Broadway, you've directed a play on Broadway, and you've acted in a play on Broadway, and yeah. not the same play. Three separate right, right. Is there, is there a word for that? <laughs> yeah, there's got to be an ego <laughs> yeah. of, of sorts for it. But is it like, are do you think about the? Do, are you aware of this? Like when this happened, were you like, ah, oh, now a play I've written is on? Yeah, it's impossible. I'm not as good as so many playwrights who should be on Broadway. So I, I understand that it's a, a matter of fate and being in the right place at the right time. In those low points in my career, I think, why me? You know, mm-hmm. but it's it's a mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a time when we I did another play on Broadway after that because the same producers hired me two more times mm-hmm. to do two more plays. The next play was a play about the rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson mm-hmm. and Tam and Kale. Again, directed that. And I remember him saying he's younger than I am, like by probably 15 years, maybe more. Uh, but he's a very wise person. And he gathered the cast on stage right before we were to start previews. And we all stood in a circle. And he said, just remember this moment because this is rare. You don't get on Broadway all the time. This is special. No matter what, nobody can take that away from you. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really an awesome thing to say because he had by then had directed um, In the Heights and he had done Lombardi, but he was he had the wherewithal to know that that what we were doing was not um, easy to achieve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've got so we just talked about your this career trajectory, and I know there are so many things that you have done that we haven't talked about. You won an Academy Award, mm-hmm. right? We haven't even gotten there, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is an amazing accomplishment. Um, I am curious what you, uh, how you assess yourself and your work as far as uh, um, success is concerned. Like, like, have you, have you had moments where you felt like you've achieved and like you've done it? Uh, is it like you talked earlier about the continuous plate spinning, like, mm-hmm. like what is success to you in all of this? Well, you know, it's easy to talk about that, um, at my age because, you know, I mean, I'd love to work for the rest of my life, but it can't go on forever. Um, success to me is at this point, it's doing what I want to do and, um, having less interference mm-hmm uh that's you know if you look back on on what i've done i feel like i don't have any i don't have much left that i i need to prove um i feel like really comfortable that um you know i can do what i i need to do and that i have the skill set to do it mm-hmm. the, the the thing that hasn't changed though is i haven't i haven't stopped hustling and i don't think i ever will stop hustling and I often wonder if there's anybody out there who feels like they're not hustling because the next job is never a guarantee. And there are so many obstacles and the world is changing so rapidly these days Mm. that you can't tell what's going to prevent you from doing what. But um, I'm happy with the things that I have and the things that I have done. Um, I can't, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was a little bit fearful 
of being allowed the opportunity to continue to doing the things that I want to do. Because mm-hmm. it is, after all, everything that I'm doing is a collaborative art. It requires other people to help me do it. I can't do it without their help. And uh, which makes me, you know, wonder if there's something out there that I can do by myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, if there is and you do it, will it feel as satisfying? Maybe. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I, I I have a picture in my mind of a, a artist who lives alone <laughs> and paints for himself. All right. Um, that said, I I you know I miss theater when I'm away from it, yeah. and I miss the collaborative art whenever I'm away from it. You spend too much time in your you know little writing studio. It starts to work on you. Yeah. It's Whiplash, sabotage, spin it to your friends. You've got it all figured out. The cycle's about to end. Thank you to Eric for not only spending time with me, but also being a supporter and advocate to me and my work, and the work of so many performing artists who have been invited to Door Kinetic Arts Festival. Thank you to Rob Weiner Kent, Allie Pearson, and Kalundra Smith from American Theatre Magazine for doing what you do for the subtext and for the magazine as a whole. This episode of the subtext was produced by me and edited by associate producer KJ Jarbo. Music from this episode that you're hearing right now is from Box Knife, featuring the aforementioned KJ Jarbo on drums. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. And here we are, once again at the end thank you for everybody listening out there the play filling me up this month is soured milk written by the wonderful and multi-talented kj jarbo the associate producer for the subtext this is an excellent play i love it i love kj and everybody should check this out <laughs>